0: Good evening. This is Rob McClure, now with Sean Bull in the studio, coming to you live via the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. And here are the headlines for this evening. The Wisconsin State Journal
1: reports that GOP gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels suggested bringing a flat income tax to Wisconsin if he is elected. The current wait rate for wealthier taxpayers is 7.65%. Michaels, who has personally contributed over $15 million to his campaign, proposes to lower it to about 5%. This would effectively create a flat tax rate paid without regard to income. A number of Republican legislators have proposed eliminating the income tax and increasing the sales tax from 5% to 8 or 9%. Michaels made the announcement at a Baraboo Tavern yesterday where he was endorsed by the politically powerful Wisconsin Tavern League.
0: The Capital Times reports that meetings of city committees on Yom Kippur would be prohibited under a new proposal by City Council President Keith Furman. The Holy Day, otherwise known as the Day of Atonement, began last night at sundown and it ends tonight. Observant Jews fast the entire day as a means of repentance and reflection on the year ahead. Currently, the council cannot meet on this day, but four city committees were scheduled to meet tonight and those have now been postponed. Berman, who is Jewish, said that it's important for public meetings to be accessible to people of all religions and that people should not have to choose between their faith and participating in public meetings. With the addition of Yom Kippur, city committees are now barred from meeting on 22 days throughout the year.
1: Andrew McKinney, a Republican candidate for state assembly, has filed an ethics complaint against his opponent, Melissa Ratcliffe for making a speech asking for support for Democratic state candidates. McKinney's complaint states that Ratcliffe violated a-, a Dane County ethics ordinance in a speech on September 22nd at a Dane County board meeting when she said, quote, Let's support Tony Evers for governor and Josh Call for attorney general. The comment was made while discussing a proposed policy to neither fund nor accept money from agencies working to prosecute those seeking an abortion, an action that Republican Attorney General candidate Eric Toney has said he would carry out. McKinney and Ratcliffe are candidates for the 46th Assembly District, which includes Sun Prairie, Cottage Grove, and parts of North Madison.
0: One of the oldest housing cooperatives on the UW campus will live on in a new location starting in 2023. The Zoe Bayless Co-op, founded in 1955, will move from its current location in West Johnson Street to Langdon Street. Its current location will be the site of a new humanities building. Additional space at their new site will allow the co-op to offer housing to students at other area colleges. Those were the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories.
1: Absentee ballot drop boxes have been shuttered since July, when the same state Supreme Court deemed them illegal. Instead of simply removing them, however, the city of Madison has decided to take a slightly different tack and bring in internationally renowned artists to turn them into public art pieces to inspire people to vote. WORT producer Nate Wegehow has more.
2: According to the peer-reviewed Election Law Journal, Wisconsin is the fourth-hardest state to vote in across the country. It became even more difficult earlier this summer when the state Supreme Court ruled that absentee ballot drop boxes were illegal, immediately shuttering Madison's 14 drop boxes scattered across the city. Those drop boxes have sat vacant since that ruling, with a sign posted on the front of the boxes explaining that voters can drop those ballots in the mail or return them to their clerk instead. But the now unused drop boxes have been given a new life as public art, thanks to the work of renowned conceptual artist Jenny Holzer. As of today, some of the once blue drop boxes have been painted black, with text explaining why the drop boxes can no longer be used to return ballots. On the side is the Sojourner Truth quote, Truth is powerful and will prevail, in bold white letters. Karin Wolf is the Arts Director for the City of Madison. She says that the quote can be interpreted differently by everyone who sees it, but has her own thoughts on the project.
3: And I think remembering, you know, this, Wonderful quote by Sojourner Truth, it gives us hope, right, to think that in the end the truth prevails, the people prevail, you know, democracy hopefully prevails.
2: Jenny Holzer, the artist, has been working since the 1970s with a distinct style of simple but powerful aphorisms, painted, projected on buildings, displayed electronically, carved into benches, and so on. Drop boxes are just her latest medium. If this feels like deja vu, well, that's because it is. Almost exactly two years ago, in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, Holzer's art came to Madison in the form of trucks emblazoned with LEDs intended to inspire people to vote. That project also included a mural on the exterior of the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art, painted by local artists, with the same Sojourner Truth quote that, "...truth is powerful and will prevail." Wolf says that because of her previous work in Madison, getting Holzer to design the new Dropbox art was easy.
3: She's an internationally known artist, and it was an honor to work with her and partner with her a few years ago. And so, I, you know, we still have a very positive relationship with the team. They were a great partner to the city of Madison. And I reached out to Leah Cold, the former curator of AMOCA, who works with the team, the Holzer team. and. And it just seemed like a natural fit since it, it is about voting and getting out the vote. And since I know that, that that's one of her issues that she cares deeply about.
2: Installing the absentee ballot drop boxes was no easy task. Installed in 2020, the drop boxes cost around $53,000 each and were funded by a private grant to facilitate election administration. Some of the largest cities in Wisconsin received that grant from the Center of Tech and Civic Life and have since come under fire from conservatives for taking so-called Zuckerbucks. Election administrators, though, say that the Supreme Court ruling banning the use of drop boxes and otherwise restricting the use of absentee ballots is a major blow. Wolf says that the court's ruling invalidating the use of the boxes was a major blow to the city, but an opportunity for public art.
3: It's a way of you know, taking lemons and making lemonade. We, we invested, the city invested into these ballot boxes. They were a wonderful solution, particularly helpful for people who are disabled, people of color and in lower income neighborhoods, and that's who's impacted by it. So how do you as a city, as a community, take um, something that's, I don't know, taking something away from us and transforming it into something that kind of re-empowers people.
2: The timing of the project is no accident as absentee ballots roll out this month in the run-up to November. Voters can still deliver their ballots using a different type of drop box through the U.S. Postal Service. Not all the drop boxes have been transformed yet, but all are slated to be turned into public art in the coming days. Races for U.S. Senate, Wisconsin governor, and a variety of state-level offices are on the ballot in November. You can request an absentee ballot for the fall election today at MyVoteWisconsin. That's myvote.wi.gov. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Waggyhout.
0: Agriculture is under increasing pressure to reduce its carbon footprint. An array of government cost sharing programs and nonprofits have tried to help more producers change their approaches, and a Wisconsin initiative has produced some new data on what's being done across the region. Here's Mike Mullen from the Wisconsin News
4: Connection 50,000 tons. That's the potential reduction of greenhouse gas emissions thanks to conservation efforts by Wisconsin farmers supported by a statewide coalition. This fall, Farmers for Sustainable Food is out with its first progress report which summarizes efforts and data from last year. The coalition consists of six farmer-led conservation groups across Wisconsin and works with 231 farmers. The report also says participating farmers reduced more than 330,000 pounds of phosphorus from leaving their fields. Managing Director Lauren Bry says while there are popular practices like cover crops there's a desire to experiment as well.
3: That might be different methods of manure application and incorporation into the land. How do we try different mixes of cover crops?
4: Despite increased awareness of climate-friendly practices in agriculture, supporters acknowledge there's still work to do in convincing farmers who are concerned about their bottom line. Wisconsin's Farmland Preservation Program says it saw participation decline by 24 percent between 2010 and 2017. Rye says if partners boost engagement efforts, that could entice more farmers to embrace the conservation movement.
3: Trying to model what impact those practices are having on different sustainability metrics, so carbon or greenhouse gas emissions or water quality, and We're taking that a step further in our sustainability projects, even with an addition of a financial analysis
4: component. Farmers who responded to the 2018 landowner survey cited a burdensome application process as well as limited tax credits for not signing a farmland agreement. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
0: The time is now 6.17 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: When trying to address reckless driving, municipal governments often run into a major roadblock. Many roads that see reckless driving in cities like Madison are state-connecting highways and under the direction of the state's transportation department. This leads to municipalities having to go through red tape with the state to make even the slightest changes to make roadways safer. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Jonah Chester investigative reporter with Wisconsin Watch and WPR to learn more about the bureaucracy involved in trying to curb deadly driving on urban highways.
2: So, Jonah, just to sort of kick things off here, just sort of briefly lay out for me what what your story is about. It's uh, if I'm sort of correct here, it's broadly sort of about reckless driving and state bureaucracy that sort of holds up uh, city actions to address it. Do I, do I sort of have that correct?
5: Yeah, you've got the main thrust of the uh, of the story. Correct. We eyed these particular portions of the state highway system. They're what's known as connecting highways. Now, essentially, these are portions of the state highway that run through towns and cities. And they look largely like regular municipal roads. Uh, but in fact, they're part of this broader system and they connect into that broader system. Now, on these roads, you know, the Wisconsin Department of Transportation essentially gets final say on, you know, new infrastructure. Uh, there are small things that the cities and towns that these roads run through can do to address reckless driving on these roads, you know. Uh, retiming stoplights was given to me as an example some new signage but when it comes to major redesigns like narrowing or eliminating lanes for example you know the wisconsin department of transportation really gets the final say on those efforts and um, the advocates i spoke to both in madison milwaukee say that you know uh, wisdot largely prioritizes things like traffic flow overall traffic throughput over the safety of pedestrians and cyclists and in certain cases road users on these particular roads um, now, not to go on too long here, but just so everybody sort of has an idea of what I'm talking about, at least in the Madison area, the connecting highway, everybody listening is probably the most familiar with is actually East Washington Avenue that runs from, you know, the state capital, pretty much clear out of town all the way down the east side, you know, through the Isthmus, through the east side. And, you know, we've seen in the last year or so a lot of high profile crashes on that, a lot of fatalities over the course of the last year, particularly clustered around, I think, July of last summer.
2: And so we'll we'll get into sort of East Washington in a second here. But one thing that you sort of mention in your article is how uh reckless driving here in Wisconsin it does sort of disproportionately uh affect uh black folks here in Wisconsin. Oh, can can you sort of tell tell me a little bit about what you found with with that?
5: Yeah, so what we found is that you know um, reckless driving does disproportionately impact Black residents, uh, particularly of Milwaukee. That's just because where you know a bulk of Wisconsin's Black population lives, and in particular, it affects a lot of people on the northwest side. Um, in Milwaukee's case, we profiled Fond du Lac Avenue, which is also part of, I believe, State Highway One Forty Five. It runs northwest from you know downtown all the way straight out of the county. And um, so we took a look at statistics, fatality statistics on this road and one other connecting highway that's Capitol Drive sort of intersects with Fond du Lac at a 45 degree angle. Um, But they were flagged for us, you know, by residents in the community, by uh, Milwaukee's mayor, Cavalier Johnson himself. He mentioned that, you know, Capitol Drive is a really big safety hazard. He has constituents that are too scared to cross the road to get to the grocery. What we found is that an analysis of Fond du Lac Avenue, which is sort of this state highway that runs northwest is a connecting highway that runs northwest out of downtown through milwaukee and also uh Capital drive which is another connecting highway that runs straight west and it sort of intersects with fond du lac at a 45 degree angle um, we found at least 42 people have died in traffic collisions along those two stretches from january 2017 to july 2022. Uh, now that's roughly 11 percent of the cities uh, of milwaukee's 381 total traffic fatalities during that period now we were sort of limited because you know Unfortunately, the number of traffic fatalities grows week to week. We had to cap it off at the tail end of July for our statistic count. But you know, that number has increased um, by at least two fatal crashes in recent months.
2: And so now a lot of your story uh, does focus on the city of Milwaukee. So I, I sort of have a two part question for you here. How how is the uh, city of Milwaukee sort of been attempting to work with the uh, DOT to address reckless driving? And then sort of sort of looking at that, looking then at Madison, how how do they sort of differ, uh, compare and contrast between Milwaukee and Madison and in, in dealing with the DOT to uh, address reckless driving?
5: Yeah, well, what's interesting is I found in my reporting that the way they both deal with WISDOT is remarkably similar. You know, it's a lot of negotiations that happen sort of on the back end. I I don't want to say out of public view, but not really in like committee meetings or anything like that. It's these negotiations between WISDOT and either the Madison Department of Transportation or the Milwaukee Department of Public Works. And essentially what they do is, um, you know, as the uh, traffic engineers in both cities told me, uh, they essentially go to WizDot with a design. Let's say they want to narrow a lane. Uh WizDot comes back and says, nah, that's not not in the cards. So it becomes this back and forth process and they seek this compromise that's sort of ideally a middle ground, but you know, more often than not, you know, some of Milwaukee and Madison's more uh, aggressive efforts at traffic mitigation like narrowing or eliminating lanes typically get shot down by wisdot really from the start of the design and planning process they don't really even have a chance to get out to the public so there's more similarities than differences between how madison and milwaukee deal with wisdot now one thing i did want to include in the story but we didn't get around to um because you know A mentor once told me, in journalism, there are no finished products, there are only deadlines. So I did have to leave this story with one lingering thought in my head that I sort of want people to ponder. Madison and Milwaukee, I don't have firm data to back this up, but I think it's safe to say, as two of the biggest cities in the state, they also have two of the largest traffic engineering and public works departments. Now, when they go to WisDOT, you know, they detail the process where there's a lot of negotiation, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of back and forth, and you know... uh, the interim commissioner of public works over in milwaukee he told me we've lobbied quite heavily to get wisdot to thaw on these like hard and fast design principles over the years and he said they're they're starting to make progress you know wisdot is starting to move in what they perceive as a more pedestrian friendly direction but you know that's how the two largest traffic engineering departments in the state handle it and you know these connecting highways um while the bulk of deaths along them occur in Milwaukee and Madison, just because they're the most densely populated, he's also run through smaller towns and communities. So one thing we weren't able to get to in the story just because we didn't have time was, you know, how does a smaller rural town or, you know, a town of 10,000 people, which maybe has a few people in his planning department or its traffic engineering department, when Wizdot shoots down an idea, do they have the person power to push back? Do they have the time to push back? So that's one area we didn't really get to cover in the story. But, you know, I think if people read this story, I want them to have that in mind as they're going through the piece of like, you know, Madison, Milwaukee, they can negotiate with Wistat; They have the the power to do that. They're large. They're, you know, very large departments. Uh, the department of a town of 10,000 might not have the time to do that. So that's something I sort of want people to keep in mind as they're reading through this story.
2: So then so sort of the last thing I want to ask you about is you didn't talk with uh, some uh, pedestrians and bicy- bicyclist uh activists and uh advocates here in Wisconsin uh Jake Newborn with the Bicycle Federation of Wisconsin sort of talking about about public input uh in deciding sort of these things and uh, specifically there not being enough public input when it comes to deciding okay well how can how can we cut down on reckless driving on some of these on some of these highways what what can you sort of tell me about that
5: Yeah well what what Jake Newborn in particular flagged is that And he pointed out, this is true, not just for projects on connecting highways, but really in any project that the Wisconsin Department of Transportation is overseeing. It feels as though they hold these public input sessions, you know, they gather input from the community, and then that's not reflected in the final design. You know, the community might say, we want a protected bike lane on this road. Uh, Either the local DPW or WSDOT is like, okay, great. And then that's not included in the design. So what he flagged for me is that, you know, as cyclist advocates, as pedestrian advocates, they would really like to know. Essentially, they'd like to, they'd like to have WizDot show their work. You know, why didn't this get included in the final design? You know, why did you cut, using my earlier example, why did you cut this designated bike lane? Because oftentimes it feels like WizDot, at least according to Newborn, it feels like WizDot has these public input sessions, and then very little of the public input actually gets folded into the final project. So, you know one of the things he flagged that he'd really like to see is like i said he'd like them to show their work he'd like them to say here's all the feedback we got here's what we were able here's what we were able to incorporate you know here's ideas that we sort of had to bend a little bit but you know overall the spirit of them is in the final design and here's the ideas we had to shoot down because then that helps people get more familiar with you know how a road is built who are the who are the stakeholders in this road You know, and just in general, make them feel like they're part of the process, because when you go to these meetings and you offer public input and, you know, you take time out of your evening to go meet up with somebody at the community center, you attend a virtual Zoom, you know, you sit on these meetings and you offer your input. And then it seems like none of that was incorporated. It can be disheartening, right? It can be very disheartening to say, I went to the time to give you my input, which you asked for, which you requested, and then it feels like none of that got put in. So just showing their work is a way to build trust and maybe, you know, at the end of the day, they show their work and say, "Here's why we weren't able to incorporate this feedback" for somebody else to come and then say, "Well, yeah, you weren't able to incorporate this. Why don't we find a middle ground?" It's another compromise, right? So by showing their work, that's a path forward that Newborn said, you know, could be a really great way to build public engagement, a really great way to build trust, and ultimately maybe a great way to Put in these design elements into these roads and public works projects that were initially discarded out of hand, but they might be able to, you know, using community engagement, find a way to include those in the final design.
2: Well, Jonah, we've been talking for a little while here, so just sort of wrapping up. Do you do you have sort of any final thoughts? Anything that we didn't get to that you want people to know about your story?
5: But you know, uh, look, try and get involved in these projects when they're in the public input phase, because your public input does matter. You know, if they hear you and you're loud. And you make it known you want a pedestrian path or you want a bicycle path or, you know, you want a lower speed limit. It's powerful, you know. So I really want to encourage people to get out and make their voice heard on these public projects.
2: I've been talking with Jonah Chester, investigative reporter with Wisconsin Watch and WPR, about his story on the barriers cities face as they try to curb reckless driving. You can read the full story online right now over at WisconsinWatch.org. Jonah Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me.
5: Thank you for having me, Nate.
1: The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to The Local News on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Rob
0: McClure. Thanks for joining us. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, our feature contributor and my co-host this evening, Sean Bull, hit the road to pick some pumpkins, traverse a corn maze, and of course, eat apple cider donuts.
1: You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Generally speaking, I don't like donuts. But when fall comes around, I make an exception. Or perhaps an exception is made for me. Apple cider donuts are airier, crispier, and all-around tastier than their year-round counterparts. And they also have an advantage in where they're typically enjoyed. Where normal donuts are mostly food for office workers who don't like to cook breakfast, apple cider donuts are found in orchards and farms, places where people go to take it easy on the weekend. There's a formula both for the donuts and the places that sell them, but each is just a little different. Over the past few weeks, I visited as many as I could. I ate a lot of donuts, and I think I've developed the definitive guide to apple cider donuts around Madison. I know that no one should care about the methodology I used for my one-man donut contest, but I figure if you know where I'm coming from, you'll be better equipped to adapt my findings to your own needs. So, first and foremost, my goal here is to find the best apple cider donut. I don't have hard empirical criteria, but I want a donut that's fluffy on the inside with a bit of crunch on the outside from big granules of cinnamon sugar. I want it to taste like apple cider, and I want it to be warm, whether I buy it at 8 a.m. or 10 minutes before close. I asked the people of Reddit where they prefer to get their donuts and received 17 unique answers. Because of this, I decided to exclude bakeries from this competition. If I'm asking you to drive the better part of an hour to try a pastry, you should at least have something to do after you've swallowed the last bite. Still, some of the suggestions I got will be a bit too far flung for most of my listeners, so I have to take into account what's realistic. Ultimately, for this story, I ended up with one flat-out best donut, one overall best experience, and one honorable mention for those willing to go a bit farther. I also have opinions on the other dozen farms I visited, but, you know, I have to cut something for time. Let's start out with the overall best experience, not with the best donut. Wisconsin is blessed with choice in this area. Even if you live in the biggest of our cities, you're never too far from a family farm whose operators are willing to share with you a slice of their life. At least, that's the conceit behind agricultural tourism. You can go out to the orchard for a day, handpick some apples, and savor a taste of slow-paced agrarian life. But how many fruits can you pluck off the stem, pretending you know what makes one better from the next, before you realize that farm work isn't fun, it's work, and you're doing it poorly? This is why the best agritourism farms build an autumnal theme park, Filled with apple canyons and corn mazes, things we don't have space for in the city. Sutter's Ridge Farm, southeast of Mount Horeb, has just about everything. The strength of Sutter's Ridge is its variety, the sheer scope of activities it offers. Obviously, they have the usual apple picking, late-season raspberries, and a pumpkin patch. When you're done pretending like you can forage for food, you can get to the real activities. There are fun things to do for people of all ages, and new objects are added every year. Like any good fall farm, Sutter's Ridge has a corn maze. It's not the most elaborate I've seen, but you can make it more complicated by finding waypoints throughout the maze and stamping proof of your progress on your maze map. A run at the maze is worth the $5 admission. A different $5, or an $8 combo pass, will give you access to the Sutter's Ridge Activity Zone, Everything here is clearly handmade, and I love it all. They have a playground, a petting zoo, hand-pumped rubber duck races, there are slower pedal tractors for the little kids, and a pedal cart track for everyone else. A year or two ago, they added what I can only describe as racing hamster wheels, where you run inside a giant plastic wheel from one end of the track to the other. There are handmade yard games, all kinds of play structures, something new every year. And if you're a parent, you don't even have to engage with any of it. You can sit back, eat a donut, and monitor everything from a single vantage point. Upon hearing the name Sutter's Ridge, or its proximity to Mount Horeb, you might assume that this farm is on a hill. And you'd be right. Sutter's Ridge sits on terrain typical of southwest Wisconsin, where flat ground is a rare commodity. The entire activity area is on a gentle, grassy slope, and above it sits the Apple Cabin, A rustic building in which you can buy donuts and cider, among other things. A porch wraps around much of the cabin and offers a great viewing angle of the activity zone and even the entrance to the corn maze. Now for the donuts. Sutter's Ridge elevates theirs simply by serving them warm. I don't know why this is so uncommon, but of the 15 farms I visited, only a few serve their donuts above room temperature. The Sutter's Ridge donuts were a bit chewy, but they have a wonderful cider flavor, and the warmth is just perfect on a cool fall day. Doing everything this little farm has to offer will take hours, and then when you're done, you're right across the street from Donald Park, one of my favorites in the Dane County system. As a package, that's really hard to beat, and it would take a really good donut to make me consider going anywhere else. Luckily for all of us, Alpine Ridge Orchard makes some really good donuts. This farm, a few miles west of Brooklyn, is a relative newcomer to the agritourism game. Unlike most of the entrants in this comparison, their farm is less than a decade old, and they only started making donuts in 2019. Alpine Ridge doesn't have the usual farm store. Instead, they sell their hot food out of a trailer. But maybe it's good that they don't have the space to let their donuts sit. Despite going near closing time, these were the freshest donuts out of any of the farms I tried. A darker brown with a bit of a crunch on the outside, soft on the inside, perfectly warm, with tons of cinnamon and sugar. These immediately took the top spot on my donut list, and no one really came close to dethroning them. Unfortunately, I can't also give the top experience spot to Alpine Ridge, as they're just too new. They have a corn maze and some animals to interact with. They do have a pin full of golden retriever puppies at the moment, which is an easy way to win points with me, but it's not enough. They haven't built up the activities side of their farm yet, and I'm not sure whether they'll ever match the likes of Sutter's Ridge, Schuster's in Deerfield, or Skelly's in Janesville. Their property is kind of small, but that doesn't mean they've tapped their full potential. For now, the food is excellent, and I'll be interested to see where Alpine Ridge is in another 10 years. So, that's the two main categories. The best donut, and the best overall fall farm that sells them in Dane County. Overall, I was surprised how consistently good they were. The only stale or maybe overcooked donut I got was at Schuster's, which is too bad, because otherwise they're rightfully a favorite for Madison families and field trips alike. Other than that, you can go basically anywhere in the area and get a similarly good example of a fall favorite treat. If you've tried them all and want something different, I have one more recommendation. Several people on Reddit insisted I drive to Illinois and try the donuts at Edwards Apple Orchard. The Edwards family operates two farms, each about 10 miles east or west of Rockford. If you're bringing kids, you should head for the east one by Poplar Grove, but Whichever one you visit, be prepared to wait in some lines. Each Edwards Orchard is centered around a huge barn, inside which you can buy basically any decoration or food that is even tangentially related to the concept of autumn. Conveniently, the line for fresh donuts snakes through this mega farm store, giving you plenty of time to browse and make impulse purchases. It took me a full 10 minutes to get through the lines to get and pay for my donuts. Part of this comes down to how staggeringly popular the Edwards Orchards are. Part of it is Chicagoans' innate ability to create traffic wherever they go. Seriously, when I went, there were multiple county sheriffs whose whole job that day was directing traffic around the parking lot. Is the Edwards Cider Donut worth navigating a county fair's worth of people to experience? I'd say at least once it is, yes. Besides being hot and fresh... Their donuts taste distinctly buttery. I'm surprised no farm in Wisconsin offers something similar. This should be right up our alley. Regardless, I still prefer the classic. Alpine Ridge is still my number one. These heavier, buttery cider donuts are a bit too rich to eat one after another as you stroll around a corn maze. In any case, that's not really an issue at Edwards. They have a few family activities, but the focus is on the store and I don't think they have enough to keep a child entertained for a full afternoon. Luckily, if you visit the location in Poplar Grove, they're just a few minutes away from the Lindbergh pumpkin patch, which has plenty to do. I'm running out of time here, but if the phrase Halloween bouncy houses doesn't interest you, I don't know what else to pitch. It's been a lot of fun cataloging cider donuts. In the online version of this story, I'll link the websites of all the farms I mentioned. Also, I'll link the Reddit post where members of the community shared their favorite donut spots. I'll try to go back through that post at some point and comment my opinion on each of their picks. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's sean.bull at wortfm.org. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull. It's now time for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather
0: guru Rob McClure. Well, we've been fairly balmy these past few days, with high temperatures uh, right around 70, give or take a degree or two. But the air is dry, so temperatures have dropped off fairly robustly at night, down into the low 40s, generally speaking. And we haven't had a lot of wind, so we haven't got quite as warm during the days as the temperatures up at, say, three or 4,000 feet above us might have indicated. Uh, We did pretty good today hitting 74, especially given the pall of high clouds that filtered the sun much of the day. But uh, we would likely have hit the upper 70s, I think, the past couple of days had the winds been up at 10 or 20 miles per hour to help mix the higher potential temperatures aloft earthward. Anyway, all that will be uh, merely a moot memory in another 24 hours or so after an early-season Arctic cold front drops across the area and sends the thermometer uh, basically into free fall later tomorrow after what will be a period of, uh, I suppose, suspended animation for the thermometer during the day. All indications still point towards a likely killing frost then late Friday night into Saturday morning. And we may even get fairly close tomorrow night, though I think residual winds ahead of the still-incoming Arctic surface high-pressure cell will halt the thermometer somewhere in the mid-30s early Friday morning. The coming three days uh, will be a transient cool-off, not a longer-term pattern change. So if you are set on trying to nurse tender plants along through these next few days, you should have a milder uh, group of temperatures coming through much of next week, the way it's appearing. Uh, If you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening... You can, uh, well, finally have a look at the incoming cold air. It was off-screen up over the Arctic Ocean just a day or two ago, but it's now diving south and uh, buckling what, um, at the beginning of the image loop there, is an energetic zonal jet stream across northern Canada. Of course, what you're seeing on the water vapor is the upper-level manifestation of the cold air down near ground level, uh, that upper manifestation being in the form of a U-shaped upper trough that's diving Southward now from uh, northern Saskatchewan and Manitoba down across Lake Winnipeg. The cold front accompanying that trough at the surface will press southward across the listening area between about 7 and 11 a.m. tomorrow morning, at least to judge from a consensus of the short-range high-resolution computer models. So diurnal warming tomorrow after what will be a rather warmer night tonight than we've seen recently might actually grab a few additional degrees on the thermometer, taking us perhaps near 60 before a veering wind shift and steady ratcheting up of those winds uh, starts to send uh, the thermometer in the opposite direction midday. Rainfall still looks pretty sparse with this air mass transition. Uh, Showers may actually be likeliest in just the next few hours as the uh, weak circulation that's currently visible on the water vapor over Iowa pushes eastward across the southern part of the listing area. Uh, It's not impossible we'll see showers spring up again briefly just along the cold front tomorrow morning, though I think those are likelier uh, east and northeast of Madison. It's also possible that winds will stay active enough early Saturday morning with the center of this incoming surface high pressure uh, dropping past us to our west at that time that uh, some areas may only see a marginal frost with this, though I do suspect most locations, especially any sheltered ones where the winds get uh, light or die off, will see at least a few hours below 32. Winds will be backing west and southwest on Saturday, though, starting a warm-up that will take us uh, into and through, I think, much of next week. But back to tonight, uh, clouds will thicken west to east across the area over the coming hours. It's possible some of the light showers uh, indicated at the moment by radar and surface reports down in Iowa will work uh, eastward into areas uh, of southwestern Wisconsin, perhaps down towards the Illinois border, perhaps up to Madison. I think they'll be uh, pretty widely scattered and they'll fairly light. Uh, And it does appear from uh, radar indications as I'm looking at them at the moment here in the studio that a lot of that... uh, Precipitation is uh, dying out as it reaches uh, up towards Madison. Temperatures will drop to the low 50s on light southwesterly winds. Those winds will start uh, temperatures upward briefly after dawn tomorrow, but a veering wind shift to the northwest and north uh, in the mid to late morning hours will hold the temperatures steady in the upper 50s or so before starting them dropping again in the afternoon. Northerly winds will increase to 12 to 20 miles per hour by sometime in the afternoon and become fairly gusty late day. Uh, partly cloudy skies may thicken with uh, stratocumulus during or after that frontal transition. Temperatures will drop steadily towards the mid-30s then overnight on north-to-northeast winds, still up fairly active at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Cloud covers a bit of a tough call on Friday. I suspect it will still have enough low-level moisture to produce cumulus and perhaps some stratocumulus at least during parts of that day, given the uh, cold air in place and steep low-level lapse rates. Cloud cover would hold uh, temperatures just to the mid-40s, I think, otherwise upper 40s uh, to maybe 50 in uh, areas parts of south and east of the listening area. But in any case, uh, skies are likely to clear more in the overnight, with temperatures then dropping off towards about 30 degrees or so as we approach dawn on Saturday. Upper 20s wouldn't be a surprise. Skies should otherwise be clear through Saturday, so temperatures will respond back to the lower mid-50s on backing southwesterly winds that day. They'll come up to 8 to 12 miles per hour later on. We'll be in the upper 30s overnight and back towards 60 on Sunday with similar southwest winds again. At the moment, down here on uh, the at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 64 degrees. The dew point temperature is 46. Winds are out of the southwest at 5 miles per hour, uh, fair amount of passing mid-level cloud cover up at about 11,000 feet currently, and the barometer's uh, fairly steady over the past few hours at 30.03 inches of mercury.
1: It's now 6.50 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to October 1962. When a black army captain struggled to find housing, UW students demonstrated for and against civil rights, and a famous visitor spoke up for open housing. Stu Levitan has the news from 60 years ago this month.
6: All the years They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, October 1962, Civil Rights. As the month opens, U.S. Army Captain James Gregory, on a year's leave from the Oklahoma Reserve to attend the University of Wisconsin, is still without a place for his house trailer, apparently because he is black. The 28-year-old graduate student, here to study cancer research with a $225 monthly grant, from the American Cancer Society, has been looking without luck for a spot for his 50-foot trailer since classes started three weeks ago. Several sites seemed promising, but as soon as proprietors realized he was black, all apparent vacancies disappeared, forcing him to bust his budget by staying at the Madison Hotel with his wife and four small children. Ironically, Gregory bought the trailer when stationed at Fort Sill because of difficulties blacks have finding housing in Oklahoma. When news of Gregory's plight becomes public, Mrs. Arnold Jackson, wife of the director of the Jackson Clinic, offers him a spot on the large Jackson property in Arbor Hills, overlooking the UW Arboretum. The heavily landscaped 10-acre property, with home designed by Jackson family friend Frank Lloyd Wright, is appealing. But because of the narrow road and sharp curve approaching the site, Gregory keeps looking, even checking out a trailer court in Lake Mills, 30 miles from campus. Finally, on October 9th, a meteorologist with the Madison Weather Bureau, G.A. Rothfuss, rents Gregory a site on his five-acre property in the town of Burke, just north of Truax Field. I felt so sorry for those lovely kids cooped up in a hotel room, Mrs. Rothfuss tells the Capital Times. I don't care what color a person's skin is if he is a nice person, she adds. These people needed help, and I'm glad we could help them. While the Gregory family drama is playing out, the racial aspects of another form of housing hits a crescendo, as Madison's largest and most successful civil rights demonstration to date occurs on October 4th, when about 1,400 sorority and fraternity members march silently in the rain from Langdon Street to Bascom Hall to protest various university human rights regulations. Some march against a proposed ban on the Delta Gamma chapter over alleged discriminatory practices by its national board. Some march against a rule proposed by the Faculty Human Rights Committee, the HRC, that all campus social organizations, quote, shall have complete autonomy over membership, subject only to restrictions not inconsistent with the policies and regulations of the university, which the protesters contend is both too broad and too vague. Some don't know why they march other than that their brothers and sisters do. The Delta Gamma's Omega House is in hot water because its National Council suspended the House at Beloit College shortly after it pledged a black co-ed, Patricia Hamilton, a 1959 honors graduate at Madison West High School, president of the Beloit Association of Women Students, and daughter of Madison's most accomplished black couple, Harry and Vilma Hamilton. National officials insist the suspensions due to the chapter's administrative shortcomings unrelated to Hamilton, and the local house, founded in 1881, notes that it has pledged Jewish women and a non-white woman from the South Pacific, without repercussions from the National Council. But the HRC finds the suspension of the Bloyd chapter a violation of the 1960 clause banning discrimination and has recommended the sorority's ouster by July 1963. The large Greek delegation delivers a petition against the proposed ouster to Dean of Students Leroy Luberg, who calls the demonstration, quote, one of the best organized and most orderly ever held on campus. Then they march down State Street and home to Langdon Street. It's a long way on heels, says Luberg, who had waived the 48-hour notice requirement to allow the march, which he also calls unprecedented. And unimpressive, the Daily Cardinal says, calling the march, quote, an unwise endeavor because its leaders were, quote, so obviously confused about its purpose that participants showed befuddlement. It's about this time that persons unknown phone in a death threat or two to Cardinal editor Jeff Greenfield. Two days after the long, silent march of 1,400 students, 400 gather for a single moment of silence at the Lincoln Terrace, showing support for James Meredith's attempt to enroll in the University of Mississippi. Although the Cardinal finds this demonstration to be, quote, somewhat disorganized as students stood awkwardly in silence for a moment, its purpose was perfectly clear and thus quote, "much more effective." And the Wisconsin Student Association takes a stand, adopting resolutions deploring the riot by white students against Meredith's enrollment and the failure by Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett and other state officials to support his right to higher education. In late November, after Delta Gamma's national president finally gives written assurance that the sorority has no discriminatory restrictions and that all chapters are free to pledge women without regard to race, color, creed, or national origin, the HRC rescinds its recommendation. Faculty and students grudgingly agree to let the sorority stay. The Interfraternity Council also succeeds in narrowing the scope of the local autonomy provision to apply explicitly to race, color, creed, or national origin, which they then endorse. They don't have to pick members from minority groups if they don't want to, but if they want to, they should be allowed to do so, President Fred Harvey Harrington explains to Regents as they approve both the new autonomy rule and the Delta Gamma Resolution in early November. But there's no reprieve for the men of Phi Delta Theta. Banned from campus activities in 1961 because a national leader declared that its constitution's socially acceptable clause aimed to bar Jews and non-whites, the Madison chapter members quit their national organization, go local as Phi Delta after failing in their efforts at the summer convention to have the clause removed. They say they'll keep working on it. Everyone needs to keep working on banning bias in housing, says Mrs. Jonas Salk, because that's the key to desegregating schools, employment, and social activity. Mrs. Salk, chair of the Pittsburgh Human Rights Commission and wife of the man who discovered the polio vaccine, tells a crowd of 350 at a meeting of the Madison Coordinating Committee on Social Concerns that, quote, Fair housing is the most important civic problem we have today. Currently... Only three states and 11 cities have such fair housing laws, and neither Madison nor Wisconsin are among that number. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, fair housing-supporting, listener-sponsored WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News. Your headline writer this evening was David Aarons. Our reporter was Mike Mullen from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to our featured contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. And thanks to Sean for jumping into the co-host seat this evening as well. Chuck Kademan is our on-air engineer. Nate helped produce the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up
1: to date with WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.